This is a Squeeze podcast. We're your shortcut to being informed. Superannuation for plenty of us is something that's just always been a line item on our paycheck. It goes out and somewhere way in the future we'll be able to get our hands on it and live happily ever after in retirement. Simple. But actually there's a whole system in place to make that happen. And it sure does get a lot of news airtime. Plus, from now, your contributions, so that line item we're talking about, is going up and there's other changes too. So we figure, given it's your hard-earned cash, it's something you might want to understand. In this episode, we take you through how super became a thing in Australia, how the system works, and what these new changes might mean for you. Squeeze Shortcuts is the backstory to the big news stories. I'm Kate Watson. And I'm Claire Kimball. All right, let's do this, Claire. To put it simply, superannuation or super, as we like to call it, is money set aside while you're working so you'll have money to live off when you retire. That's right. And I think we can wrap that shortcut up there if you like. We've pretty much covered it. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's a little more involved than that. So let's keep going. <laughs> Just a bit, yeah. Let's get into a bit of history. The origins of super go back to the establishment of Australia's economy. So if you're a worker in the 1800s, there was no such thing as a welfare system until a handful of states started offering pensions in the early 1900s. Then what was called the old age pension became the first payment made by the Commonwealth government in 1909. That wasn't long after federation. It provided for men over 65 years old and for women over 60 years old. But of course, in those days, just 4% of the population was aged aged over 65. Life expectancy for men was 55 and for women it was 59 years. Yeah, we've certainly come a long way as far as living longer. And of course, that meant to be eligible for the pension, you had to live that long back then. You also had to have very little in assets and income. For everyone else, they had to provide for their own retirement. That's right. And then we fast forward to 1974, good year, that was when I was born, (laughs) uh, when the Bureau of Stats conducted the first national survey of retirement income income and it found some pretty large disparities. For one, it found that 32% of the workforce was covered by a pension fund or superannuation and more than twice the number of workers with super were male, so women were being left behind. It also found that super was more common in the public sector than it was in the private sector. Yeah, so it was a few years after that when a newly elected Hawke government in 1983 said it supported superannuation for all workers and Prime Minister Bob Hawke, along with his treasurer, Paul Keating, Claire, brokered a deal with the unions that meant employers would pay a 3% super contribution into an industry super fund. And that was in lieu of a wage rise. It didn't affect all workers, but it was a start. And it saw the number of Aussie workers with super rise, of course. But from there, it was Paul Keating who really championed the notion that all Australian workers should have super. Mm. And in 1992, not that long after he rolled Bob Hawke to become Prime Minister, he introduced the superannuation guarantee that made it compulsory for all employers to make super contributions for their employees. It started at 1%, it rose to 2% in 1990. 3% in 1999 and since then there have been reforms to allow Aussies to choose their own super fund and as of the 1st of July, Claire, this year it's at 10%. And as things stand today, assets held by the super funds totaled $3.1 trillion. That was at the end of the March 
2021 quarter. It's a lot of money. It is a lot of money and it affects all of us now. So good to understand how it all works. Let's get into that now. Claire, when you start a job, you don't just get paid a salary. You also receive super payments from your employer. That's compulsory. And that's called the superannuation guarantee that we just mentioned. It's the responsibility of your employer or if you're self-employed, yourself to pay that 10% of your salary into a super fund. Quick tip, I've been caught out on this one. When you're negotiating a new role, it's worth knowing if the remuneration your prospective employer is talking about includes or doesn't include super in that number they give you. Yeah, so for argument's sake, if they're offering you remuneration of $100,000, you should know if that includes or excludes super because, of course, with the super guarantee now at 10%, that's almost $200 less a week in salary than you might have anticipated if the remuneration that they've pitched you includes super. That's right. But of course, that $200 a week is still yours. It's just going into your super account, which means you can't get your hands on it for quite a while. Once the money is in your super account, what happens to it? It's invested by the super fund and the investment side of things gets really complicated. (laughs) But basically, your money is pulled with other people's super to buy and hold assets, things like shares, property, cash bonds, other fixed interest investments, and these assets hopefully grow in value or provide income through rent and dividends. As with all investing, there's some risk involved. And the idea is the super fund has a diverse portfolio. So all your super eggs aren't in one investment basket. But what if a fund does lose your money? Surely there's regulation in place for that, Claire, surely. Yeah, (laughs) there really is. The funds are very tightly regulated by ASIC, which is the Australian Securities and Investments Commission. There's strict rules about what sort of things super funds can invest in. And you can never say never, but experts say the collapse of a fund is very unlikely because their investments are quite diversified. Mm. And if it was, then you can bet that the government would be called on to help those affected. Yeah, let's not even think about a super fund collapsing. That's a whole thing. Back to investing. The way this is done can be broken down into two major types, defined benefit funds and accumulation funds. So defined benefit schemes are where your retirement benefit is determined by a formula instead of being based on investment returns. It's a older style superannuation scheme and it was common in the public sector until the 1990s. It operates like a pension of sorts. Mm. They're being known for being quite generous, so it's no wonder you can't really join one these days. Accumulation funds are the ones where what your employer puts in and what you might put in if you want. Uh, There's a performance over those investments that the super funds have made. It accumulates over time. So those accumulation funds make up the vast majority of super funds that you and I and everyone else is in now. That brings us to the different super fund categories, Claire. Most super funds fall into either retail, industry, public sector, corporate or self-managed funds. Kate, we're not going to go through each of those. I think we could no, <laughs> probably move on. But the big difference is whether they're run for profit like the retail funds or if they put their profits back into the scheme like the industry funds. 
the arguments about what model is best is mostly about principles. Mm. Supporters of the not-for-profits say that they're geared to doing the right thing by their members, whereas supporters of the retail fund say that those running it, if they're incentivised financially to make good returns, then everyone benefits. There's something for everyone to chew on because really it's up to the individual to make up their mind about what sort of investments they make. Option number three, Claire, is you can do it yourself. Yeah, the self-managed super funds, that's one for the do-it yourself investors. It gives them a lot more control over the sorts of investments that are made. It also means that they can bring family and other members into the scheme as they choose, but it takes a bit of management, also takes a bit of compliance with ASIC and others. And no, it doesn't mean that you can buy a house to live in with your super. (laughs) Uh, There's something that's called the sole purpose test, and that means that you can't have direct access to the assets of the fund. Yeah, plenty of rules around self-managing your super, but it is an option and one that's increasing in popularity. As you say, though, they're still subject to the same rules around things like tax. Tell us about super and tax. So, Kate, you're going to be surprised that there's not really an easy answer to that. But the theory is that superannuation is taxed on the way in and the way out. And what that means is that if you make a voluntary contribution to your super, you decide that you want to put some of your money into your superannuation fund, there is a tax on that. And the government has to really make a a balancing act decision on that because it wants people to invest in their retirement, but not so much that they're actually denying the government of other revenue that they might get out of other forms of investments. And of course, as you're coming out, people need to be able to live on their superannuation. Yep, that certainly is the whole idea. Claire, now we're pretty super literate. We understand superannuation and how it works. Let's get into now why it's been in the news of late has a lot to do with those changes. Claire, there have been some big changes coming to super. They're billed as making it easier for super members, so for workers. Those changes were passed by the federal parliament a couple of weeks ago. The first thing to point out is that the super guarantee rate increased on the 1st of July to 10%. Yeah, it rose to 10% as we've discussed. And it was a policy from the Rudd-Gillard days that we'll see those compulsory super contributions go up to 12% by mid-2025. And the reason for that is those in favour of the hike point to rising life expectancies and also the inadequacy of many people's super balances to fund their retirements. Uh, A few numbers for you, almost 50% of Australians are expected to retire with less than $200,000 in super and just 19% of us expect to be able to retire with enough to comfortably live on in their super. So there's that. Yeah, there's that. As for the arguments against that super increase, will critics say that employers could hold back wage increases because their compulsory super contributions have increased. So less money in the pockets of people. And that's an issue right now because people need to be spending to keep our economy ticking over through the pandemic. There's also some in the coalition and further afield who don't support more money going towards super as a general principle. Uh, They say workers should have more choice about where their hard-earned cash goes. Many of those same critics also say super holders should have the option to access it earlier so they can invest in their own futures like buying a home. As it stands, Claire, you can't get your super until you reach what's called your preservation age and retire. 
And that age is usually between 55 and 60 years old, depending on your birth year. There's some exceptions to that, like hardship provisions. And last year, the rules were bent to allow people financially affected by the coronavirus to access up to $20,000 of their super early. Huge debate about that, of course, and about whether reaching a 12% super guarantee is too high. Yeah, and a loud voice in this debate is former Prime Minister Paul Keating. He's the architect of the system and he really doesn't like the idea that the Morrison government has poked holes in the system that includes allowing people to access it early. And he says that if people access their super early, they won't have as much in their funds accumulating wealth so that they have more to retire on when they get older. Yeah, and that plays into his argument for increases like the one we've just had. On top of that, increase, Claire, there's also been some other changes made to super by the government. And when you say some changes, they're billed as the biggest reforms <laughs> to superannuation since it was set up. It's called Your Future, Your Super. And what Treasurer Josh Frydenberg and Superannuation Minister Jane Hume say is that the legislation aims to save workers $17.9 billion over 10 years. There's a fair bit to Your Future, Your Super. What a name. <laughs> it is. It's one from the marketing department. <laughs> so one of the changes is to improve investment returns by exposing what they call dud funds. They'll do that with new performance tests. There's also something called stapling, and that doesn't require a paper and an implement at your desk. <laughs> We're paperless now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What it does refer to is attaching workers to their super account. So each time they switch jobs, their employer doesn't set up a new fund. Yeah, that's one big issue with super. Something we'd all be familiar with is having super here, there and everywhere. It's a problem because all super funds have admin fees, meaning it really is better in the long term to have just one super account. But there are some arguments against that. Yeah. And that criticism is mainly driven by the super industry. They say that when a person starts in one industry, like hospitality, for example, a bar worker at uni, uh, they would then stay with that super fund. And it might not be the most appropriate one for a future job, like when they graduate from uni and start working work as a nurse. There's also concerns that workers will be stuck in an underperforming fund. So I guess to appease that argument, these changes will mean it's easier for workers to be able to more easily jump ship to a new fund. Yeah, and they can compare super funds on the government's new online Your Super tool. It's one word, of course, very Mm. hip and happening with the use of the people to (laughs) put it into one word. Uh, It lists funds ranked by fees and investment returns, and it aims to help those looking to consolidate their funds if they have more than one account. Definitely jumping on there ASAP. Those underperforming funds, those dud funds, Claire, they won't get off scot-free. No, they won't. Most super products will have to run through an annual performance test and if they fail that, they'll be required to inform their members and those who are persistently in the bad books will be prevented from taking on new members. And that's your shortcut to superannuation. On to our recommendations. Each episode of Squeeze Shortcuts, we recommend some further reading, listening or watching. It's that Your Super comparison tool. We've got to include a link to that. Uh, As you said, one word, Your Super. You can compare products, you can consolidate your accounts and you can give your employer the heads up around your super choice. All in one place. 
Mine is a four-part series that Alan Kohler did for the ABC 7.30. It was a really deep dive into how to manage your retirement and it had great interviews with people like Paul Keating uh, and plenty of others putting all sorts of arguments about super, but mostly some really practical info and things that you need to consider as you set yourself up for retirement. For some of us, that seems like a while away, but it's probably worth thinking about given what we've learned in this shortcut. That's all from us this week. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to Squish Shortcuts as always. Please tell other people about it if you do like it. It's the number one way that we grow our podcast is through word of mouth. Chat next week. 